The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. You get two choices in life, I think, when you go through something like that. And one is you can just bury your head in the sand and hope that it all goes away, or you can confront it and you can take it head on. And Threbo was an amazing community and I had a lot of friends here. To leave that was an option, but for me, it really never came in to my uh, train of thought. Hello, my name is Andrew Wilson. I'm a senior analyst and founding member of the Ethical Partners team. Our guest today on the podcast is Stuart Diver, General Manager of Threadbow Resorts. Stuart, for anyone over the age of 30 at least, is a household name as the sole survivor of the tragic landslide in 1997 in Threadbow that took 18 lives, including that of his late wife. Stuart's life's journey has remained closely linked to the mountains, successfully embarking on a career in hospitality and tourism, now in the role as the General Manager of the entire resort. Threadbow, in turn, forms a part of the portfolio of assets held by the listed company, Event Hospitality. Stuart has become a vocal advocate for mental health, climate change awareness, as well as a supporter of various cancer charities. He's also recently launched his own podcast called The Elements, which I can highly recommend and understand went straight to number one. As well as this, Stuart has various media commitments and a book entitled Survival. To say Stuart has endured extraordinary hardship is an understatement, but out of it, he has become a business leader, a generous social advocate, and I'm sure you will attest to a really inspiring person. We are very excited to be hosting Stuart Diver on the Ethical Partners Good Investing Podcast today. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. That's great. Look, I, I thought we, we might start off as Stuart Diver, the young adventurer. Um, from what I've read, as a child, the high country, Threadbow in particular, played a really formative role in your upbringing. I think I've read, and, and correct me, but you were, you were climbing Kosciuszko at the age of two and a half and, and skiing down those mountains not 12 months later. How did the mountains become so pivotal for a young family growing up in Geelong, Victoria? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, a pretty amazing upbringing. Um, obviously, my mum and dad uh, were very much into the outdoors and uh, loved the mountains. They'd uh, emigrated from Scotland. Uh, and so the mountains in Australia were very similar in a lot of ways, old and rounded and lots of granite. Um, so, yeah, we used to spend every weekend, whether it was bushwalking in summer or whether it was uh, skiing in winter, um, up in the mountains. And uh, you know, for me, that was an amazing adventure, but it also exposed me to, you know, a, a lot of things, one of them being, you know, physical hardship when you're carrying your backpack or you're climbing Kosciuszko at the uh, the age of two and a half. I think that I, my mum carried me up Mount Bogong, which is Victoria's highest peak when I was six weeks old um, in the little uh, backpack. So I was exposed from a very long age, you know, a very young age to that. I think that the real key for me in that was, the mountains, you get exposed to not just a beautiful area. You know, the reason why I'm in Threadbow now is because of that. You know, I love the spirit of the mountains and that, and what the, what they stand for. But um, in those days, it was very much just being exposed to adventure, to to physical hardship. You know, in some ways, you know, to probably mental hardship. And I think that that played a huge role um, in making me the person that I am today. Yeah, that's fascinating. And 
Threb, I mean, not Threb, excuse me, Everest Base Camp at the age of nine. Is that correct? That's that's not the... Yeah, I know. When you look back at it, yeah, my mum and dad were actually pretty cruel. It was um, That was 27 days um, hiking in and out of uh, Everest Base Camp. Um, yeah, as a nine-year-old, probably didn't appreciate it as much as I would have now. But um, yeah, definitely an amazing experience. You know, I look at, it got out at the airport in Kathmandu, you know, and there's people with leprosy, you know, as you walk out of the airport. And, you know, you're asking your mum and dad, you know, why does that person have no hands or, you know, no feet? And, you know, to be exposed to that sort of poverty, um, you know, from a, such a young age, I think was, you know, an, an amazing thing as well. So it wasn't just that combination of, you know, the, the, the mountains and the adventure and all of that. It was also that, you know, I got, I got exposed to that. And mum and dad, I think at the age of two, um, mum and dad went on a mission to Fiji and built a church um, on on an outlying island for the Uniting Church. They weren't in the Uniting Church, but their neighbour at the time in Geelong was. Um, so I was two, my brother was four. Um, you know, this island, that no, they'd never seen white people on, on this island. And so, you know, I got addicted to sugarcane. I remember that much. But, you know, pretty, pretty amazing experiences. And somewhere in the back of my mind, even as a two-year-old, you know, I think all of those experiences are logged. And that's what's, um, you know, given me that platform, uh, you know, for the rest of my life. That's fascinating. I can imagine some of those must be very great grounding experiences for a young individual and moving um, to the the studious Stuart Diver, so to speak, and and you mentioned your your parents. I I believe your mother was instrumental in um, pushing you to study at RMIT um, after school. I'm I'm interested, were you a very dedicated student or did you find yourself sort of pining out the window for the the mountains during those years? (laughs) It's funny, I had had no, uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I liked school and I liked studying. I went to a school in inner city Melbourne in North Fitzroy, so there wasn't a huge um, amount of outdoors or sport or any of that sort of stuff. So, you know, it it didn't interest me greatly, but mum was a teacher herself and uh, she was always adamant that, you know, we had to go and get a uh, tertiary qualification of, of some description, so which was good. She actually wanted me to get into IT, which was in you know the the late eighties when you know IT wasn't the cool thing to do. But um, you know maybe if I'd got into that, <laughs> I wouldn't uh, be where I was today. I might be in an office somewhere in uh, Sydney or Melbourne. But uh, yeah, luckily for me, I went and did a hotel management course at RMIT and uh, you know got the degree that I needed to. But you know, all I always wanted to be back in the mountains. I wanted to get a job that was in the mountains and I think you know for year 10 work experience I went up to Falls Creek and worked as a lift operator and a ski instructor and we did a bit of stuff for national parks there for two weeks and all of my teachers were laughing you know Stuart's just going on a holiday um but you know the and it was funny because they all thought you know that at that point that I was uh going on to in their mind for greater things to become a doctor or a lawyer or do that sort of stuff but I um yeah I always had that dream that I was going to end up in the mountains and hopefully I'd get a job that would uh, pay the bills. Yeah, cool. I, th- I remember my year 10, I think I spent a week at a merchant bank while they all watched the cricket test on, on the week on, on the TV. So it's a slightly different <laughs> experience, but I'm sure we both had almost as much fun. Um, you, you mentioned your love of Threadbo and, you know, if we if we move to, to Threadbo, you, you, you know, for those unfamiliar, and I'd be shocked if there are many listening to this podcast, but it's Australia's largest ski resort. It's won just about every Magic Gong, a ski resort in Australia can it's got well over, and I'm sure that's a stale number, but a million visitors a year through multiple seasons these days. 
And before we touch on the, the events of, of 1997, I'm keen to understand your, your journey through Threadbo. You know, you, I understand you've worked through the garbage services, you know, labouring, ski instructing. Yeah. Obviously, you're running the place now. But where I'm, where I'm going with that is you talked a lot in, in, in your book and the like around your entrepreneurial spirit. Is that something you've been able to maintain and bring with you through as you've as you've risen through a, a large organisation? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think one of the real keys is to be able to know when an opportunity presents itself to you, and then to be able to take advantage of that opportunity. But to be able to do that, you have to have first put yourself in that situation. Um, so for me to come to Threbo, you know, work as a ski instructor in winter, and then as you said, you know, I did collected garbage, uh, washed dishes, worked in bars, you know, did summer guided walks, did pretty well every job that was in Threbo. But as I did that, I gained experience in those areas, and then. Yeah, I always loved working with people, so they were all pretty well people-based, and Threadbo always had that uh, about it, which was yeah, which was amazing. So, as I went through, another opportunity would come up, and you'd say, you know, but what's the opportunity of collecting garbage? You know, that doesn't seem like an opportunity. But if I look back on that now, that period adds that little chink for me, so that when I'm working with the team now, I can relate really well to the to our current guys who are out there collecting the garbage because I've done it, and I think in a small town even though this is a big business, you know, we employ 1,200 people at, at the peak in winter, uh, to have that human connection to be able to talk to people um, and they can see that you've actually been through that and had that experience. And that's across all facets, not just work, but I think it is really important in the work the work forum. And what I did, you know, back to the opportunities is as opportunities presented themselves, so, you know, I worked really hard and I got the highest ski instructor's qualification I could, you know, in a very, very short time, in three years. And that was just because once I focused on it, I wanted to do that. And then the next opportunity there, then you become a supervisor in, you know, the ski school. And then from that, you look around and you go, well, what else is there going on? So I've, you know, I've always had that ability to be able to see what the opportunities are, but not just let them go by and actually take advantage of those. And I think that that's really key as you try and gain experience and as you try and, you know, move up in either the corporate world or, or just in life, you know, and, and that's what's stuck by me, you know, over these, you know, my 20, you know, plus years now uh, of being in Threadbow. Yeah, so it sounds very much like a uh, do as I do, hands-on. Is that how you describe your management style without wanting to put words in your mouth? Yeah, it is. I mean, it gets, it's hard though now because, you know, with, with that many staff, you know, I've got 14, you know, members of the senior leadership team in Threadbow. Uh, you know, you can, it's very easy to become disconnected because the, there, you know, there's lots of levels there before you, uh, you, you get down to the, to the lower levels of staff. But I think, you know, for me, it's about that, that human connection. It's about saying, you know, we are here to support you in what we do. You know, there's, I, you, you, it's impossible for, you to be hands-on, you know, in an organisation this big in absolutely everything you do, but you do it via other ways. And that is number one, by having a great team under me who then, you know, who live by exactly the same, uh, you know, ethos that I do. And that is, you know, they lead from the front, but they also care deeply about the teams underneath them. And I think that that's really important. I think that's what we do well in Threadbow. 
So my experiences coming up, you know, obviously I worked for people who did that really well. And I obviously worked for people as many of us have who didn't do it as well. And so you learn from that as you go through and, and it's about that, you know, respect, trust in the team. So if I've got that in my senior leaders, then they will have that in all of those levels below them. And if they can feel that, then we are, you know, you're truly united as one team. And if you can't, and it's hard to get right, you know, all the time in such a big organisation, but if you can get it right, then you you really do have that amazing culture. And that's why I, I want everyone to go to work with the same enthusiasm that I do every day. You know, we, we live in an amazing place. We've got amazing opportunities here, especially, you know, the future, what it holds for Threadbow. And so I look at that and say, you know, I want everyone to feel the same thing. I don't want it to be a grind. There's, oh, there's, there's rubbish jobs for, you know, for saying there's collecting garbage. We still have to do all those sort of jobs. There's roadworks. There's all of those sort of things. But um, I want people to want to come to work and do those roles. And I think that, you know, that's instilled in our team in Threadbow. And, um, you know, that's the key. So rather than me get at, getting out and collecting the garbage, um, I think, you know, I instill that through the team that, you know, we all want to be here and we want to, um, you know, move forward with that common goal to make Threadbow a better place. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and you said um, Threadbow is an amazing place that you live in. Uh, you, you've written previously about how people are surprised that you maintain a love affair with the mountains, given how much they've taken away. I can remember the day when the tragic events in 97 occurred. It was my 14th birthday. And like all Australians sitting around the TVs with brothers and sisters and around the world watching, you know, we, we know you as this incredibly courageous person who survived for two and a half days in freezing well, sub-zero temperatures and the sole person pulled out alive of a landslide. You must be asked all the time, how do you find yourself not only back at Threadbow, but talking so openly and, and, and gushingly about, about this location? Yeah, I mean, it's you, you get two choices in life, I think, when you go through something like that. And one is you can just bury your head in the sand and hope that it all goes away, or you can confront it and you can take it head on. And my way that I've dealt with things in my life has always been um, confront and um, and take things head on and then deal with those and deal with what it comes, yeah, with, with what the world throws at you. So Threbo was an amazing community and I had a lot of friends here. So for me to leave that, which, which was an option at that time, I could have just gone and said, that's too much, I cannot emotionally deal with that, was an option. But for me, it, it really never came in to my, uh, my train of thought. My first thought was, okay, I've got to stay in Threadbow and there were a lot of reasons for that but the the main one was from a psychological point of view and I had a great psychologist at that time it's better to confront yourself with that and then you force yourself to deal with the trauma and the tragedy you've been through because quite often if you run away you never actually ever deal with it and my one because of my personality and I'll take it head on and I'll try and deal with it from a psychological point of view that's what I decided to do so talking about the landslide basically happened from you know the second day I was in hospital after I'd been pulled out because the police came and interviewed me about what had gone on so I've been talking about it right from the very beginning um, and have continued to but then you go well how can you then talk about it in a positive way so when when I talk about the landslide, I'm talking about Threadbow. I'm talking about the community of Threadbow, the people. You know, that's what drove me on to survive, and that's what continues. 
you know, to give me the love of this place. You know, and a lot of those people have left or changed, but there's still a real core group here and there's a real core culture within Threadbo that is, you know, that is so important to me. They've been so protective of me over the years. Uh, you know, they've cared for me. They've looked out for me. You know, all of the other things that have gone on in my life, I always know I can rely on that community and the people within Threadbo. So when you look back on it, it was the best choice I ever made um, to do that. And, and it has given me that emotional stability to be able to move forward and deal with what life has thrown me, you know, thrown at me post that, because I think that that's a real key for people as well, that you, you need to, if you, if you keep pushing it away and hiding it and pretending it, it didn't happen, then that's not the only big thing that's ever going to happen in your life. You know, there's big things that happen in people's lives day in, day out. So how then do you deal with that? Do you run away from that as well? Do you continually run away or do you say, no, no, this is something, this is a challenge in front of me. How am I going to deal with it? And then to, to move forward from there. And I think that, yeah, I, I made that choice and it was you know, the best choice I've ever made. That's an amazing message. It almost sounds like you're describing wanting to avoid that rubber band getting tighter and tighter and, eventually it releases and, and you, you've obviously worked that out quite quickly and um, no doubt, you know, I, can, I can't imagine how confronting it must have been, but having to talk about that 48 hours afterwards with the police must have in some ways in hindsight have been a therapeutic element as much as it would have been really difficult at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's the big bit. I mean, that was sort of the start. And then I remember there was a nurse in hospital and she said, oh, you're going to need to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And I was going, whatever, you know, 27 year old male, I don't need to see anyone. I'll just head back up to the pub in Threadbow and we'll deal with it that way. You know, and I did, I, I tried to do that. I got back to Threadbow and I, you know, went on the regime of going out and drinking and, you know, talking to my mates and pretending that life was great, but it was, you know, probably about six months later that, um, yeah, that I really realised with the help of friends who pointed me in the right direction um, and the company um, that uh, in Threadbow that I, you know, needed to get more help. And that's when I you know, met my psychologist, uh, Darren Wilson, and he's uh, been with me for the last 24 years. And, uh, yeah, we've got a great relationship and it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of mental health and, uh, and that you've got to look after your own mental health whether you're a business person, a sports person, whether you're a mum, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, your mental health is crucial because then you've got the ability to be able to to function and to be able to look after those around you. So yeah, I made you know that that choice, which was brutally hard. We did long, long sessions. Um, you know, just you know the landslide delving into that, and you know the emotional lows of going there. It would have been a lot easier to turn around and say, actually, I'm done. I'll just go back to the pub. Thanks, but um, luckily, you know. I uh, was able to to continue on with it, and and that's what's given me the ability to sit here today and talk to you, you know, at any level I want um, in regards to anything that's gone on in my life. It's because I did a huge amount of hard work with my psychologists um, and continue to. Although I and I always say this, it's I am not of the American style of you need a therapist for yourself, you need a therapist for your dog, a therapist for your cat. You know, everyone's got, you know, I'm not that at all. There's been periods of, you know, years where I haven't uh, had any contact with my psychologist at all because he's given me the tools to be able to deal with things in my life. But there are big things that come along and occasionally you need to, you need to go back and use that resource. And I think that, um, yeah, if there's one message that I, you know, love to get out, especially in today's society, it is that there's, there's no, 
shame at all in um, getting a uh, mental health professional to help you with your um, yeah, with your mental health because because that's the key. And I think if you look around at what we're going through in society at the moment, you see that is uh, becoming even more and more to the fore. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And look, I'm sure I'd speak for everyone who'd be listening to this saying thank you for your bravery post the event in being able to talk and, and, and so so clearly articulate what I'd imagine a lot of people in their own way with their own um, struggles face each day. So look, thank you for that. One thing we mentioned in the in, in the intro, your, your podcast, The Elements, which has had initial immediate success, you know, you go through various natural disasters, significant events and tales of survival, um, the, the Sydney to Hobart 98, the Newcastle earthquake, I think was in 89, the recent New South Wales bushfires amongst others. And, and one thing that struck me from listening to that is the survivors of those traumatic events either um, choose for their own sake to compartmentalise and, and turn their back on that location or that event or that activity. And equally, almost there's a polar opposite response of, of other survivors who are, I want a bigger boat, I want to win that race, or I'm going to rise through the RFS or whatever it may be. And it it sounds like, um, I guess when I was listening to those podcasts, I was fascinated by it, but, but listening to you talk, it sounds like you can really align with that sentiment, particularly the latter Um yeah, absolutely. It's it's an interesting one. I mean, the you know talking to all of the people in the those episodes of the elements, it was it was really eye opening to me in that yeah, as you said, there's there's definitely two, and it sort of really is two ways you do it. You run away or you take it head on, and you use that experience to grow um, and to you know and to drive yourself forward. I think. What you you see over time is though there is really only one way to do it, and and that is to deal with what went on. Um, and it may you may not go and buy a bigger boat and then you know sail to Sydney to Hobart the next year or do whatever, but to use that experience to say you know what that was really, really ordinary or that was a terrible thing that I've been through, and there was you know people lost their lives or whatever it was, but how am I going to use that experience to drive myself forward in life? So, you know, I can only talk, you know, from my experiences, it was interesting, you know, with all of those people who'd obviously survived traumatic events in their lives, that the ones who did that, went on and thrived and had, you know, great personal lives. You know, they had, you know, a lot of them had really good business lives. They, they were able to use that experience to, to, to go forward in life. And that's what interested me because that's the experience that I've had, you know, that you can look at something and say, you know, you can lose so much, you know, you can lose a wife or you, in such tragic circumstances, you can lose, you know, all of those friends, work colleagues, etc. in such, you know, tragic circumstances. How, how do you get the, what's the positive in that? How did you use that to drive yourself forward? But it was that ability to say, okay, through, so through that loss, what is it that I don't want to lose? Well, I don't want to lose great friendships. I don't want to lose, you know, just friends, that community of threat, but I don't want to lose, you know, a close partner again. You know, that is, so therefore, how am I going to do that? Well, I've got to get out and I've got to live. I've got to look at what it is that I truly believe in, look at my belief system, my values and say, okay, what is it that I'm actually living for? And if you can work that out, and that's what a lot of the people in the elements had worked out, what am I living for? I'm living for the fact, you know, for me that I, I love people, I care for people. I, I want to do that. You know, we go back to me talking about the business in Threadbow. 
you know, despite at times you have to make hard decisions and you have to do all of that sort of stuff that comes with business. If you do that with the, the bottom based on your values or your beliefs, that you actually are doing it and you want to care for people as your number one thing, then the business just flows on and it just follows. And that's for my personal life as well. If that's my, what I'm living for, then it means that all of those people that went before me. So, you know, Sally in the landslide as my wife, you know, her death is then hasn't been in vain. It hasn't been wasted because I look at her, the, the memories of her and what I remember about what she shared in her life with me and all of those things. And it was all about caring for people. It was about loving people. It was about, okay, we're here to actually make the world a better place. So rather than live my life the opposite to that, I will use her death as being the platform for me then to launch forward in my life. And I've done that with every experience I've had in my life, big and small, because you can do it in any way, shape or form. And it doesn't have to be as lofty as, you know, I love everyone and care for everyone and all of that sort of stuff. It can be your value system can be very varied and it can have a whole lot of different things. And, you know, they come from all of your experiences in life, obviously your parents and everything else that's gone on in your life. Um, and we all have different ones, but, that's for me what drew what has driven myself forward and what what continues to get me out of bed every day and, and you know and drive me forward goodness Stuart, your inspirational words it's amazing to listen to and what one theme that seems to be sort of resonating consistently is one of resilience and one of survival and i want to explore that in the context of 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 your business life shortly but just one last question on on these tragic events and and the outcomes i guess your, your book Survival um, really it stood out to me particularly that your your rational thought and your presence of mind and, and your survival skills came through so extraordinarily. You know, what one bit really summed it up was you, you said that in the over 50 hours before anyone even heard your voice, you refused to use a negative word like help. Amazing. Like I wouldn't have even associated that with negativity until you put it in that light and, and you've preferred to use words like hello. Because I think you said it was to maintain your your heart rate and 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 not not bring on any sort of negative health outcomes. Where where does that come from? I mean, is that something you was innate? Yeah. Or, can you talk yeah, us I through mean, that? It's, I would like to think that every human who, if they were put in the same situation that I was put in, would have been able to survive and come out of that. Now, obviously, I talk to people and they go, well, I don't think that is. I think that you're unique. But I, I don't like to look at it that way. I like to look at it as that every human, we're amazingly strong and we all have this in ourselves. We just don't get put in circumstances, thankfully, where we need to, where it needs to come to the fore. So, you know, that that rational thinking in that situation was, yeah, I mean, I... I had to think, I didn't want to panic myself, you know, and although I knew that Sally was right next to me and that I knew that she died, you know, two and a half minutes, you know, after the landslide occurred, yet I, I still, I didn't want to scare her either. You know, it was sort of like, just don't worry, you know, this, because it was cave darkness, I couldn't see a, a thing, so total pitch black. So I, I had really no idea. So I had there were no images in my mind. So mentally, I just had to say to myself, and I, and I was claustrophobic long before that. I hated the dark long before that. So you can imagine that 50 hours in, um, yeah, I, I needed to do everything I could to make sure that I did, as you said, stayed calm and stayed focused on, you know, keeping myself alive. That, that was purely it. And so anything negative 
that came into my mind, I immediately, you know, tried to get rid of it. So I didn't want to be adding to that by, by yelling out, you know, help me panic. I'm down here. I'm doing whatever. Um, so yeah, so I, I yelled out hello because I thought that, that was a lot more friendly, a positive way of uh, getting the message out. Maybe if I yelled a bit louder, they might've found me a bit earlier, but um, that wasn't ever going to happen given uh, how far down I was. But it's, um, yeah, it's one of those things where, where it comes from, you know, I, I put it back to um, a lot of it, you know, resilience, these, you can, you can, yeah, there's been a lot written about it and it's probably a word that's slightly overused in society currently because everyone's trying to be resilient, but actually no one probably really wants to do the hard work to become resilient. Um, but resilience or mental robustness or whatever you want to call it, it, it comes from, and you know, this is my theory Um, I've done a lot of reading on it, but it sort of makes the most sense to me. And and it's basically 30% genetic. So one third genetic. So, and I was lucky I had, you know, my parents, Scottish known for their strength, all of that sort of stuff, you know, 30%, uh, environmental. And, you know, as we've spoken about, I had amazing upbringing, um, great education, traveled the world, you know, unbelievable experiences, which has definitely added, uh, to, to me being, you know, mentally robust, resilient, strong. Um, and, but the most important third, and this is the bit, you know, that I just alluded to before is what you do with the first two thirds that's what makes you resilient. So you can actually have had, you know, you might look at your parents and go, oh, they're not the toughest people I'd ever imagined or the most mentally strong. Or you might, you know, say, well, I didn't have a great upbringing. I didn't get to go to Everest base camp when I was nine years of age. And so, you know, I don't have that in me. Yeah, that's, that's okay. Because the real key is I could have done nothing with those first two thirds. And I could have just said after the landslide, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to die and just give up. But I didn't. I chose to use those experiences, to use that, you know, genetic, uh, you know, my, my genes and it, to be able to say, okay, what am I going to do to survive this? So I pulled every experience I'd had in my life right to that bit. I focused everything into that. So did that then make me make the decision to not have, try and not have negative thoughts and to try and use positive words? Yeah, more than likely. But I could have used it the other way around and just said, oh, I'm out, I'm done. And I think that's the key to become resilient. We can't just read a book and we can't just talk about it over and over again, we actually have to do things that make us more resilient. And we always talk about everyone wants to have resilient kids. Well, a resilient kid is not going to be the one sitting at home on their iPad for eight hours a day playing games. That does not build resilience. A resilient kid is someone who's exposed to, and, and it doesn't have to be things like I was, but exposed to, you know, some physical hardship, get them out playing sport, get them running around, some emotional hardship, you know, let's have first, second and third in, in school events again, you know, not everyone gets a ribbon. That doesn't build resilience. You know, it is, the, the world is actually a place where we need to learn to be resilient. And I think that the bit that we're currently missing in society is, that we're, we're not doing that, we're talking about it, but we're not actually doing anything to to make ourselves, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, I'm sure, more resilient in business, you know, more resilient in all of these facets in our life, more resilient in our personal life. We actually have to do it. And that's the bit that I see that's currently missing. We know how to be resilient. We've got a thousand books written on it, but it's how we actually do that in our own lives, I think is key. And I was just lucky that my mum and dad bought me up and gave me that opportunity 
opportunity for me then to make that choice that I was going to be resilient. I was going to be mentally strong and I was going to be able to get through this. But I would hope, and I, you know, I probably look a little bit with this Pollyanna view of the world, but I would hope as humans, we all have that within us because that's what gives me the hope for the future and what we're going to uh, be able to do as a society. It's an extraordinarily humble response, Stuart. Thanks for being so candid. It's interesting to hear you, you say about society. It, it almost feels like you're, you, you're describing society as growing up with children who are almost used to bump a bowling. They can't bowl a gutter ball. And, you know, you almost yes. need to open the lanes up a little bit more. I, I understand what you, you're saying. It's a good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for part A of the podcast. Join us next time for part B, where we discuss survival skills and steering a business through the pandemic, climate change and sustainability, and Stuart's charitable interests. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.